Amen. It's such a privilege and such a joy to be gathered together with the people of the Lord. Um, I was thinking just while Austin was reading, my soul's been a little bit weary and just tired this week, but what a privilege and what a joy it is to gather with God's people to to be reminded and renewed and refreshed as we worship Him. For the Lord is worthy, and He is good, and He is faithful. So let's turn now to the Lord's Word, um, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. We began last week an exposition of Peter's second epistle, and so we will march along in that looking at verses 4 through 7 of that first chapter. The title of the message today is Partakers of the Divine Nature, and that may sound like a little bit of an attention-grabbing, maybe a little bit of a provocative title, but really there's no intent to do that. The intent is to be biblical because that is exactly what Peter says the Lord makes us in the text before us today. Um, Really, this is a continuation. I, I think I mentioned last week that Peter's introduction, his kind of first point to kick off the letter, is an extended verses, uh, an extended look in verses 2 through 11. And, and so really all we're doing is kind of taking a few weeks to go through one long passage. So, so we've got to kind of retread a little bit of the ground from last time to understand where we are and where we're going. Peter is writing to encourage and to exhort the saints to understand that this outworking of godliness is the visible and demonstrative power of God at work in them through their salvation. We see that the Lord's divine power, operative through His divine Word, is what is at work. It is what has made and continues to make us partakers in, sharers in His divine nature. And this is glorious and deep truth. It's glorious and deep truth that we really need to to see and and grasp hold of and take it and allow the Lord through His Spirit to apply it to our lives. It's truth that we need to understand clearly, and as the text tells us, we need to seek to apply it diligently to our lives. So let's turn to our text. I'm going to read from verse 2 through verse 7 to kind of set us a little bit of context. Second Peter chapter 1, picking up at verse 2. If you will, please stand with me as we give attention to the reading of Scripture. And this is the inerrant and inspired Word of God. It is true and it's worthy to, for us to give our attention to its reading. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, And of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust." Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, 
love. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless its reading and may he write it upon our hearts for the sake of our sanctification and for his glory. You may be seated. Now, would you join with me now in a word of prayer? Our God, you are exalted in the heavens, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You reign supremely. To you belongs all honor and glory and dominion and power. You have created the world. You have created all that exists. Nothing that exists has come into being except for your work. Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that would just stop and praise you, that we would acknowledge your greatness, your kindness, your grace, your mercy, and your love. May we understand that you are holy, that you are righteous, that you will avenge sinners who do not come to life in Christ by pouring out wrath for all eternity. Lord, we pray that you would magnify and glorify yourself to us today. Pray that we would have humble and eager and prepared hearts as we come to your word. Lord, by the truth of your word, I pray that you would sanctify us. I pray that you would reveal sin in our hearts and in our lives. Pray that you would break us, that you would... Mold us and shape us and conform us to the image of Christ. I pray that you would break the stubborn will that desires to remain in sin. I pray that you would give us wisdom to understand the truth of your word, whereby we are called to work out our salvation, but know that it is you who are willing and working within us. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be diligent to work hard as we seek to honor you with the way that we live. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds, for the word is inspired by your spirit, and it's your spirit that must then take that word and write it upon our hearts. Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and hearts to apply the truth that is before us today. Lord, I pray that Christ would be made much of as we're gathered today, that we would lift high the name of Jesus, that we would be given a glorious glimpse of our Savior. I pray that you would work and build up in us a greater love for and devotion to the one who gave his life for us. Lord, I pray that we would all, each one of us here today, be full of the Spirit. Lord, for it is by the Spirit that the communication of the truth finds effectivity. Lord, if your Spirit doesn't work in us, then we have gathered in vain. The hearts and minds of men cannot accomplish the task that is before us today, but Lord, you are mighty, and your Spirit is great. 
Pray that all that we say and do for the rest of our time together today would honor and please you. Pray that our worship would be pure and acceptable to you. And ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So within the context of 2 Peter, Peter has this clear aim. The the clear aim is to promote godliness as the expected outworking of our salvation, and specifically the outworking of our salvation in the face of false teaching, and we'll get to that in the second chapter. But what we see is that godliness is God's provision for us in the face of false teaching. For if we walk in godliness, we will be able to resist the false teachers of our day. In these verses before us today, there are statements that are so glorious and so great and and so probing and so applicable. It's one of those times, I think I've used the illustration before, where we have to be careful that we don't miss the forest for the trees, but that we don't also miss the trees for the forest. So we need to see the, the overall work and word and purpose of the Lord in this text, but we need to see the beauty of of what he says. We need to see the the strength and the emphasis of of how he presses us to walk in a way that is pleasing to him. The Lord gives us these promises of his great and magnificent promises being active to us so that we do not remain in the status quo. He tells us that these promises are for us so that we will be transformed, so that we will lay aside sin, so that we will put on Christ, and so that we will live in a way that pleases our God. We must understand at the outset that all the promises, all the commands, all the application that we see here only finds its power when we have life in Christ. So we're going to look at kind of a list of things that we need to do and pursue. But if you pursue these things apart from Christ, it's meaningless. It will have no lasting fruit. You will be the one on that last day that the Lord will cast away and say, Depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity, because you are not covered in the blood of Christ. You have to think about this idea. We are made partakers of sharers in the divine nature because Christ became a partaker in human nature. We think about the fact that Christ left the heavens. He came in human flesh. The the creator came as a creature in his creation so that he could bear the curse that our nature earns. Christ was sinless. He was perfect. He was not under the sin of our nature, but he bore its curse in our place. And his righteousness was then credited to our account. All of these things of godliness and morality, they are commands of the Lord, but they result in nothing if they do not come in submission to this idea of coming to Christ in faith. Faith and repentance must precede any obedience for that obedience to be pleasing to the Lord. Otherwise, obedience is but a filthy, dirty rag. It does not honor the Lord if somebody keeps all of his commands, but their heart is far from him. So we have these precious and magnificent promises, and they're given and they're applied through precious blood. 
through the magnificent person and completed work of Jesus Christ. And, and we must see that. We must hold to that at the outset of our time because that's the grounds of everything that we see here. It's the work of Christ at Calvary's cross where he became a curse so that we could be counted righteous. So drive this down to, to kind of a primary exhortation, a primary point to kind of give us some bounds to, to keep us progressing through the text. We see that the outworking of the Lord's promises are new life in Christ. And new life in Christ is marked by true piety toward God, true godliness, and it's marked by unconditional love for others. That's kind of the, the two paths that Peter is going to take. He's going to walk us up this path of godliness, and then he's going to say, in all this godliness, you must also be marked by love. So we have the magnificent promises of God. They, they result in new life in Christ, which then puts us on the path of righteousness, and godliness, and unconditional love. And Peter draws out for us a clear process, a progressive path from the Lord's promises to faith, to godliness, to love. And, and so we're going to kind of march through that path that Peter, through the Holy Spirit, lays out for us. We begin at verse 4. We want to consider the idea of this God-granted fellowship. God-granted fellowship. We are partakers of the divine Nature. The text says that, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And again, what makes this passage a little bit challenging is we've got to keep the whole thing in view from verse 2 to verse 11. It's like we've got building blocks or, or, or steps that we just go step by step by step, block by block by block, where Peter builds up this idea. So to understand verse 4, we've really got to think about verse 3. We looked at verse 3 last week. Peter writes there that seeing that his divine power, the Lord's divine power, has granted to us everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The one who has called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his promises. By his glory and his excellence, he has granted to us his magnificent promises. You say, what does that mean? What that means, saints, is that you should have a great hope in your salvation because it's tied to the glory of the Lord and his moral perfection, his moral excellence, his perfect righteousness. For it's by that glory, it is by that righteousness that the Lord grants to us his promises. His promises do not change. It's almost as though the Lord is swearing by himself as, as Peter writes through the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, because of my person, because I am the great I am who was and is and is to come, these promises are granted to you. And therefore, these promises do not change. They cannot be taken away. This eternity is kept, your eternal salvation is kept in heaven for you by God. So, saint, take heart. Be encouraged because the Lord is the one who holds the hope of your salvation. We don't must understand here that it's because the Lord is glorious and righteous that he chooses to grant glory and righteousness 
to us. He chooses to make us sharers and participants in his glorious righteousness. It's not that we merit glory. It's not that we make ourselves righteous, but because he is glorious and righteous, he must make us that so we can come commune with him in eternal heaven. So again, it's not by what we do, but because of who he is. So let's think about verse 4 then with that kind of backdrop. It says, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. He has granted these things to us. The, the Greek there indicates that this is a promise that was given in the past while it has present and future lasting results. So in the past, the Lord granted these to us, and they go on forever. The literal translation of the Greek here, I think, is also helpful when we consider the precious and magnificent promises. It means that they are precious, they are valuable, they are honored, they are mega, they are great, they are extravagant and glorious, and that is what the Lord grants to us. Paul would speak about these glorious promises in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verses 7 and 8 of Ephesians 1, Paul continues. He says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. Why do you have forgiveness? Because the Lord has lavished his grace upon you in Christ. What are the precious and great promises of God? It's that you are redeemed. That there is a path to forgiveness of sin. A path that you could never actually create or walk on on your own. It's a path that was blazed by Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Friends, you think about the church, and what does this mean to the church? Well, when we gather week to week, when we gather to worship, these gifts and these promises should be on our lips. It should be how and why we praise. As we sing songs about what the Lord has done, it is this that we're singing of, the precious and magnificent promises of God that are ours through Christ. That should drive our hearts. These promises should fill us. When, when you are weary, when you are walking in dark times, these glorious promises, this glorious hope that awaits you should fill your weary heart. It should press you on. It, it should cause you to know that this world is passing and fleeting and fading away and the eternal weight of glory that the Lord is preparing for you awaits. And you will arrive there one day, not because you stress and, and strain and press on, but because the Lord keeps you. The Lord holds you. So then let's look at the idea about these um, being partakers of the divine nature. This is somewhere where we must be careful because if we're not careful, we will quickly run into a path of heresy because Scripture makes clear that there is only one God. So, so what we must understand is that 
we in no way become gods ourselves. There, there are popular heresies in our day that say that we will one day become gods, and that is unbiblical. There's but one God, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to be a partaker of the divine nature does not and cannot mean that we become gods. What it can mean is that in Christ, by the promises of God, we become sharers in the glory of His nature. We become participants in His glorious nature. It's the Greek term koinoneo. It has this idea of fellowship or companionship. So it's not that we become Him. It's that we share in what He has and what He is. So that is glorious truth. So what does this mean? It means like what John wrote in John 1 verse 12, as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To be a child of God is to be a partaker in the divine nature, a sharer in the divine nature. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines his children so that we may share in his holiness. You're not going to be thrice holy as the Lord God is, but he disciplines you even in this life so that you may partake in, be conformed to, know, and have fellowship with his holiness. 1 John chapter 3 is very clear. Verse 2, the beloved apostle writes, Now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as of yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We will be like him. Now, it's important to understand that doesn't mean that we will be of the same nature of him. It means we will be similar to him. We will be free from sin. We will receive glorified bodies. The Lord will still be the one who is on the throne. That throne belongs only to God Almighty. We will be like him. We will know his glory because we see him as he is. We will be stripped away of the limitations of our sinful flesh and nature. And we'll worship. And we will glory. If you will be similar to him one day, if you will be similar to him in glory, if you hope in Christ, John goes on to say, if we hope in him, we purify ourselves just as he is pure. You put off sin and you put on Christ. Precious and magnificent promises of God is that we will one day lay aside this sinful nature. Dear friend, do you battle with your sin? Do you feel the weight of, of what sin causes, the, the harm and the hurt and the offense to God that it is? Do you feel that weight? If you do, take heart. Because one day the Lord takes all of that away. And you'll be like him. Because you'll see him as he is. What a glorious day that will be. Peter continues to explain this. He says that we'll become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by Lust. Really, that's what we were just saying. We have this fellowship with God when we do not walk in the ways of the world. 
when we're free from the corruption of fleshliness and sin. By the Lord's design, dear friend, you will not know that perfection. You will not know that sinlessness on this side of heaven. Your sin should be decreasing because you should be being sanctified. You should be applying all diligence to become morally excellent, but you will not understand this complete freedom from corruption until the Lord calls you to glory. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says that we can quench the Spirit. You quench the Spirit by sin. And if you can quench the Spirit by sin, it would stand to reason that you can know a clearer and fuller presence of the Lord through the Spirit by walking in holiness. That's the call of the saints. Surely we must praise and worship and rest in the Lord because it was finished on the cross. That work was done. The price was paid and your ransomed soul was, was called out of darkness to light. If you are the Lord's, if you do belong to Him, rest in that. Praise the Lord for that. Glory in that truth. Let's also remember the call to work out our salvation. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling while knowing that it's the Lord who is willing and working within us. Fellowship with the Lord comes to those who do not walk in fellowship with the world. Do you grasp that idea, saint? That fellowship with the Lord comes when you do not have fellowship with the world. First John 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Fellowship with God comes as you walk in purity in the face of ungodliness. In the face of the corruption of the world, you know fellowship with God when you have a clear cutoff from that ungodliness, from that impurity, from that sin, and you walk with the Lord. You put away sin, you, you put off sin, and you put on Christ. So that is the call here. We have this God-granted fellowship by which he makes us partakers of and sharers in his divine nature because we put off sin because one day he will fully strip off that sin from us. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. So Peter moves forward then and he instructs us in how we ought to pursue this purification, how we pursue this separation. He instruct, uh, instructs us in God honoring diligence. This diligence is ultimately to the end of godliness. We diligently apply ourselves to the end of godliness. Look at verses 5 and 6. Peter says there, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, supply self-control. And in your self-control, supply perseverance. And in your perseverance, supply godliness. So again, what we see here is the connection between faith and godliness. The, the connection between what the Lord works in, which is faith, and what we work out, which is actual, practical, everyday godliness. But before we come to that idea... Think about what Peter says. He says, apply, apply diligence. 
applying all diligence. This is applying is a verb that is in the aorist tense. And so what that means is it is a snapshot of an ongoing event. You are now applying all diligence and you are ongoingly always applying all diligence to the end of godliness. Simply what we can say is that this is not passive. Sanctification is not something where you, as some would say, let go and let God. No, it's where you apply all the strength that you can give, knowing that it's God's power that is at work in you. It's not by the strength that you supply, but if you supply nothing at all, you will go further and further into sin because ultimately, if you do not strive to grow in godliness, the love of Christ is not in you. And so what do we apply we apply all diligence, all diligence, all earnestness, all zeal. You, you put forth effort to be conformed to Christ. Calvin would say here that we must put forth every effort. And we must make our exertions manifest to all. Matthew Henry says that without giving all diligence, there is no gaining any ground in the work of holiness. He continues that those who are slothful in the business of religion will make nothing of it. We must strive to enter if we're going to enter in the narrow gate. So ask yourself, saint, are you applying all diligence as you pursue godliness? Do, Do you apply the diligence in your life, in your pursuit of the Lord, that you apply in the other things of this world that you enjoy? Men, we should be diligent in our jobs. But do you apply more diligence in your job than you apply in your pursuit of godliness? Women, as you seek to care for the children the Lord has entrusted to you, do you apply more diligence in keeping the home or teaching and training your children than you apply as you pursue the Lord? You think about athletes. Athletes give their lives to become a world-class athlete. Uh, An NFL football player gives his life to to train and to grow in his athleticism and in his skill. Do you apply that level of diligence, that level of, of focus to becoming like Christ, to putting off sin and putting on the Lord? We see that this must work out from faith. The Lord calls us to engage in disciplined pursuit of godliness, and it all starts with the root of faith. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Apart from faith, there is no salvation. Apart from salvation, there is no spiritual life. And if you do not have spiritual life, doing all these things is just moral law-keeping. It's just legalism at its finest. But Peter says, through faith, as one made alive to God, by God's giving you the gift of faith, supply to this moral excellence. Supply means to furnish, to present, to add, and it's in that same tense as applying, where it's a snapshot of an ongoing event. So supply moral excellence. What is moral excellence, you ask? Well, we just saw the term applied to the Lord in verse 3. In verse 3, he called us by his own glory 
and excellence. MacArthur talks about how this is supposed to be a visible and a manifest striving after righteousness. This is an outward righteousness. It's not just where you go and live however you want and you say, yes, but I love the Lord and and my heart desires the right things. No, it's manifest to all. And this is a high calling. Again, think about it. It compares, it's the same word as the moral excellence of the Lord. So it is a high calling. But it's a high calling that we must pursue. So just let that sink in for a moment, that you are to supply and to strive after the same moral excellence of the Lord. That's what we mean when we say we are to be like Christ, to be conformed to His image. We are to be made like Him. How do we do that? Well, I've already kind of alluded to Romans 13, verse 14 a few times. We must always be putting off the flesh and putting on Christ. We must put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. When Paul says, make no provision for the flesh, friend, know that he means no provision. Absolutely zero means that we make no excuses when we sin, but we take responsibility. We beg the Lord to grant repentance. We repent, and then we change. And then we cut off the arm of the flesh. That thing that caused you to stumble, why don't you just avoid it? Walk away from it. If your computer causes you to stumble and sin, take the computer out, throw it in the trash, and don't have one. That's what it means to make no provisions for the flesh. That's what we're called to do. That's how we diligently supply moral excellence to our faith. Peter continues, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, supply knowledge. Knowledge, we talked about that last week at length, so I will not belabor it again today, but know for sure, as Peter writes, that grace and peace are multiplied to the saints in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. If you want to walk in holiness, you must be pursuing and growing in the knowledge of God. Because the Lord himself defines and he exemplifies holiness and moral excellence. So how do you grow in something that you do not know? How are you conformed to someone that you do not know? If you want to supply moral excellence to your faith, you must grow in your knowledge. This knowledge, Peter says, produces something. There's something that flows out of this. He says, and to your knowledge, add or supply self-control into verse 6. Self-control. It's the same word, a related word that Paul uses in Galatians 5. When he writes of the fruit of the Spirit, and one of the fruit of the Spirit, part of the outworking of the Spirit is that we are self-controlled. It means to be temperate. It means to be measured and in control of your desires. So you see the progression here. You should be starting to see the progression that there's faith, and then there's righteousness flowing out of that, and then there's knowledge of God flowing out of that desire to be righteous. And out of that growing knowledge of God comes this self-control. So it just builds, it stacks on top of itself. 
One uh, Greek dictionary defines this point, this word of self-control. It defines it as having mastery over fleshly desires. Mastery over the desire. So it's not merely that you resist sin. It's that your desires have changed. That's what the Lord does. That's why some of the things that you may hear in, in modern evangelicalism of accepting people in their sinful desires because they're not acting on them, therefore they must be okay, that's bogus and it's not biblical. Because when the Lord saves you, He changes your heart. Sinful desires are still sinful. To pursue self-control is to pursue a mastery over fleshly desires. Now that begins with stopping sinful actions but it must lead to and work out in a changed heart. How is this accomplished? How does the Lord give us mastery over sinful desires? It's because we are built up with and filled with virtuous and true knowledge of the Lord. To your knowledge, supply self-control. Christian's chief weapon against fleshly desires is the Word of God. The Lord has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. So as we walk in this self-control, Peter continues in verse 6. He says, and in your knowledge add self-control, and in your self-control supply perseverance. Do you see, you, you, we, we should understand at this point that this walk this striving is going to be difficult. It is going to be a striving in which we must endure, in which we must persevere. I think one good um, translation of the term here is constancy, because we must make constant effort to kill the flesh. We must make constant effort to endure, to remain steadfast. We must wage war every day. And friends, this is something that you can do on your own. You must do on your own. But this waging of war is something that we must walk in together. The Lord gives us our fellow saints so that we can wage this war as an army, so that you are not out on your own trying to be constant in your battle against sin. And when you're weary, you're just cut down and overcome. Rather, you have a brother or a sister who is right there alongside of you who will pick you up when you fall. They will hold you accountable when your desires might be becoming sinful. They will hold you accountable when your actions are not pleasing to the Lord. And you will do the same for them. You will go to war for that fellow saint before the throne of grace, praying faithfully and earnestly that the Lord will deliver them from sin. Do you do that? Do you have someone that does that for you? The progression continues. In your knowledge, supply self-control. In your self-control, supply perseverance. And in your perseverance, supply godliness. Godliness. Now that is a Bible word if there ever was one. It's something we say. We, we probably have some understanding of it. What does it really mean? When we, so we want to pursue it, we want to be godly, but what does the word actually mean? It's the Greek term eusebia. 
And what it really boils down to meaning is good worship or good religion. It's this reverent devotion to the Lord. That's kind of the pinnacle of our relationship with God, that we come through with the knowledge and the self-control and the faith and the moral excellence, and we reach this point where we give the Lord true worship, honoring worship, reverent worship, where we walk in true and undefiled religion. That is the goal of the saints. So this is an all-encompassing word. So, so you see the progression. You see the connection Peter makes. You're saved by grace through faith. Faith results in moral excellence. We pursue that moral excellence. That then needs to be built up by knowledge. Our knowledge of God then leads with His Spirit's help to self-control. Self-control then breeds forth a perseverance, an endurance, a constancy as we fight against sin. And then that all reaches this pinnacle of godliness. That is our goal. That is our desire. That is the point after which we strive. So we've seen that we have God-granted fellowship with Him, that we are to have God-honoring diligence as we pursue godliness. And then lastly, at verse 7, let's consider this idea of God-produced love, the love that the Lord works out into us that's really kind of the grounds of all of this. Peter continues that in your godliness, you must supply brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, supply love. So, Faith without works is dead, James writes, and and faith that does not result in love for others and love for the Lord is a dead faith. But notice, I do want you to notice here, that Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so the Lord here puts godliness before love. You cannot love properly until you are on this path of godliness. Culture would tell you the exact opposite. They would tell you to love, 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 and then cultural Christianity might bring in a little bit of truth. But Scripture tells you the opposite. Pursue godliness, and out of that godliness, show brotherly love, show brotherly kindness. So let's get into that. Brotherly kindness here is actually the Greek word Philadelphia. You know Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love because that word means brotherly love. Scripture often instructs us about loving one another and the importance of that. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Jesus said that the world will know you by your love for one another. So this brotherly love is how the world sees us. It's how we know that we have passed from death to life. It's how we know that we're in Christ because we love. So ask yourself, do you love your fellow saints? If you pursue something that you call godliness, and it does not result in this growing and flourishing, devoted love for one another, what you're pursuing is not the godliness of the Bible. What you're pursuing is not biblical godliness. It's some, some making of your mind, or some making of the culture, because godliness results in love. 
what instruction do we have as to what this love ought to look like? Come back to John 13, verse 34. Jesus told his disciples, love one another even as I have loved you. How do we love? We love like Christ. We love like Christ. Christ's love promotes the truth. Christ's love is sacrificial. Christ's love is a love that seeks after the spiritual good of another. It's a love that confronts sin. That's what Jesus' entire ministry was about, was confronting sin and declaring to the people that they must repent. So to love like Jesus means that we confront sin. We do it with patience, with gentleness. We do it with grace. We do it in, in all the ways that Scripture outlines for us. But we hold one another accountable because... We love, we sacrifice for one another because we love. We preach and proclaim the truth of the gospel of Christ because we love. Do you love like Christ? Peter continues, and we'll kind of wrap up here. He says, in your brotherly kindness, supply, show, add to this love. This is the Greek term agape. We know that to be this unconditional love. So he says, love the brethren, but then be filled with this unconditional love. The ultimate goal of the Christian life is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we love one another as we love ourselves. Paul told Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love from a, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Is the goal of our Christian life love? Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith? That was Paul's goal in instructing and writing to and building up his son in the faith, Timothy. He wanted him to love the Lord. And he wanted him to love the saints to whom he was called to shepherd. Think about this. The Lord showed us how to love. He showed the extent of his love for us. He, as Paul writes, demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the Lord's love. That is what we're called to pursue. We're called to be willing to love just as Christ did when Christ gave his life for us. He took up his cross because he loved us. Do you take up your cross every day because you love the Lord with all of your heart? The sacrificial and unconditional love, again, is contextually pointed at your fellow saints. So yes, we do love the people of the world because every person ever created is created in the image of God. But Peter and really all of Scripture have this special view towards the love that the saints have for one another. The love that you have for your brothers and sisters who are covenanted together in the local church. Love ultimately is like Paul outlined in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, love rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It hopes all things. It believes all things. It endures all things. He said, faith, hope, and love abide and remain all these things. But the greatest is love. So, again, you have these two paths, godliness and love. 
You pursue them both because you have been given new life in Christ. You have been made a partaker of the divine nature because he has granted to you his precious and magnificent promises in Christ. So if these are all granted to us, if the Lord gives us this new life, we must diligently seek after godliness. We must diligently kill the flesh. We must unconditionally love one another while we hold this great high regard for the knowledge of God and the application of His truth. So, so that is being partakers of the divine nature, that we pursue godliness, we pursue love, and by the Holy Spirit's power working in us, we grow in those things. We, we achieve that which we pursue. Ultimately, we achieve that when the Lord calls us from this life into eternity. But until that day, dear friends, apply all diligence. Walk by the Spirit so you don't gratify the desires of your flesh. Do this. Be immovable in doing this for the glory of the Lord. Let's pray.